everybody, canonicity. Everybody just say that with me, canonicity. You know what that means? Good, you're in the right place tonight, and I'm teaching the right message, uh, because we're taking a deep dive into understanding how we got our Bible and different things about, and here's why, because our Bible's under attack. I talk to people all the time who mock it, ridicule it, make fun of it, undermine it, question it, attack it, and sometimes hatefully. And it's under attack. Okay? And, and so the church is supposed to have an answer. Here's what Peter said. Be always ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Didn't he say that? So we need to be ready to give an answer. Well, how can you give an answer if you don't have an answer? So we're going to look tonight at an important part of the Bible, canonicity. How were the different books decided on that are in your Bible? How'd you get them? Because you'll have people tell you, oh, those are just the writings of men. They're just the writings of men like Brothers Grimm, like other fairy tales. They'll mock and say, talk about your, your, uh, your daddy in the sky. So, we want to be able to tell them how it was all compiled and, and how it was miraculous. Because you're holding in your hand a miraculous book. You got your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. All right? You have the greatest gift, aside from Jesus Christ who came to die for our sins, the greatest gift uh, that God's given us. Because that Bible in your hand has survived every attack imaginable. And it remains the all-time best-selling book. Amen? So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your blessing on this time together. Help us, Lord, to get into uh, how our Bible was compiled. Who picked it? How was it picked? And, and Lord, what can we say to people who attack it? And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before you're seated, we want to read our key verse that we, we read every time before we uh, do this series. So do you have it ready? 2 Timothy 3.16. Is it ready? One, two, there it is. All right. Are you ready? Read it with me. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Now, do you see what it claims about itself? Look at it. All Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, even Leviticus, even the genealogies, all Scripture is given by God breathing it out. Wow. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's heavy. Let's learn. Amen. All right, um, let's just talk shop. How do we know that the 66 books in our Bible are the only inspired books? How do you know they're the only inspired books? Who decided which books were truly inspired by God? Somebody had to. Who decided it? Okay. For instance, and I'm going to talk about this more later, but the Catholic Bible includes the Apocrypha. I'm going to tell you what that is also a little bit later. 
But the Apocrypha is not found in our Bible, or what we would call Protestant Bibles. It's in the Catholic Bible. Who decided that it would go there and not in the Protestant Bibles? And why is it not in the Protestant Bibles? Just for example. How do we know that we as Protestants, now you know what a Protestant is, a protestant, okay? That came from Martin Luther's Reformation. Uh, if you stood against the teachings of the Catholic Church, which were overwhelmingly uh, wrong and her, even heretical in places, um, so you protested the Catholic Church's doctrines, teachings, and much of what they were doing, you were a protestant. Okay? So that would be us. Now, I don't care about the Catholic Church so much. I mean, God bless all those people. May they walk with God and God help them. But I'm not here to attack a church, but here's the deal. I am a Protestant in that I agree that the Bible I have is the complete Bible and all 66 books are the inspired word of God. Okay? So, um, these questions about how we got it and canonicity is how these questions are answered. We're going to talk about canonicity. That's how you answer these questions. Uh, so what is canonicity? What is canon? And not two N's, but one, C-A-N-O-N, okay? What does that mean? It's a word that comes from Greek and Hebrew words that literally means a measuring rod, canon. So canonicity describes the standard that books had to meet to be recognized as Scripture. Okay? So, canon, measuring rod. So we talk about the completed canon. When you hear that phrase, the completed canon, are you talking about something that's ready to fire? No, you're talking about the completed Bible. That when Revelation 22 signed off, that was it. Nothing's to be added after that. Okay? So we say the canon of Scripture is complete. And those 66 books have passed a measuring rod of testing. And we're going to talk about what the tests were in a moment. So on the one hand, deciding which books were inspired, it does seem like a human process. Like somebody or a group of people sat down and just said, well, I like this one, I don't like that one. Do you know that Martin Luther really had a problem with James? Book of James and didn't want it in there? He was wrong. Christians gathered together at church councils. We know this historically. In the first several centuries after the uh, resurrection of Christ, for the purpose of officially recognizing which books are inspired. But here's the deal, and here's what I want all of you to get. It's important to remember that these councils, these groups of men, did not determine which books were inspired. No. They simply recognized what God had already determined. They didn't decide it. God decided it. So we're going to look first at the tests of canonicity. In other words, what kind of testing was put up against, let's just say, 1 Peter? 
says we may teach it in a few weeks. What, what kind of tests were applied to it where it was accepted as inspired by God without mistake, without error? What kind of tests were applied? And then we're going to look at the history of canonization, and we're going to look at a, a brief look at why certain disputed books were not and are not Scripture, like the Apocrypha, Book of Enoch, some others. We're going to see that the 66 books in our Bible were universally recognized by the early church all the way back to the beginning. The early church, baptized in the Holy Spirit, set on fire by God, turned the world upside down. What did they embrace as being the genuine, inspired letters and books? So what were the yet he writes things that has wowed genius scholars and shaken the world? How do you do that? He was moved on by God the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> so let's read what he said here. So we have seen and proved that what the prophets said, notice prophets said, came true. Watch how many times prophets is, is spoken in these verses. So there's the first time. You will do well to pay close attention to everything they have written. For like lights shining into dark corners, their words help us to understand many things that otherwise would be dark and difficult. He goes on. But when you consider the wonderful truth, here we go again, of the prophet's words, then the light will dawn in your souls, and Christ the morning star will shine in your hearts. You see the power of the word of God? Why don't you say with me, the word is working mightily in me. Amen. Now watch this. For no, here's the third mention, prophecy recorded in scripture was ever thought up by the prophet himself. He didn't come up with it. It was the Holy Spirit within these godly men who gave them true messages from God. So notice, the second question they would ask about any book that they were going to consider to be included in Scripture was, was, is it authoritative and is it prophetic? Now, based on that second test, a book in the Bible had to have the authority of a spiritual leader of Israel. Okay, Old Testament, it had to have the authority of a spiritual leader in Israel, either a prophet, a king, a judge, or a scribe. We have the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all the rest. But then you have David, a king, who was also a mighty prophet, okay? Or a judge or a scribe. They looked. Did it come from any one of those four? Did it come from that? If you were talking about the New Testament, they looked to see if it came from an apostle. It had to be based on the testimony of an original apostle, either written by an apostle or by somebody who was tight with an apostle. That's why I tell you, 
People say, well, are apostles and, and all of that, is that, are there still apostles today? Not capital A. Because those original 12 were called of God to write Holy Scripture. They had a calling no other apostle since has ever had. The word simply means apostle. It just means sent one. So I guess you can call me an apostle. I've been sent here. Don't ever call me an apostle. I'm not big on titles. You want to call me Pastor Jeff? Great. But you you see some of these ads and some of these magazines. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, all around, mighty man of God. You see all these titles next to the name. Why do you need the title? I don't need a title. I've built three churches. That's supposed to be apostolic, but I never want to be called an apostle. And, I, and if I'm anything, I'm a small a apostle, a sent one. That's it. But there's never been any like the original apostles because they were called to lay the foundation of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Okay, So they laid the foundation. Well, why 20 centuries later would I need to lay a foundation? Look, when you go to build a house, folks, you lay one foundation. You don't go back when the whole thing is built up and say, we've got to tear this thing down because I've got to lay a foundation. No, the foundation's already there. Paul still talks to me. Peter still talks to me. The apostles still talk to me. That's free. That's not in my notes. I'm just giving you that free gratis. So no, I don't believe there's capital A apostles anymore. No, not like them. They're sent. That went over really big. I can tell. Because some of you are hearing other things. But, you know, chew the meat, spit out the bones. You know, you got to love me anyway, and and that is not a deal breaker regarding your salvation or mine. But I'm going to tell you, there's no more capital A apostles. All right. So they look to see, all right, I've got 1 Peter in front of me here. I've got this letter. Who wrote it? And they go, an apostle. Then they go, well, I I got James here. Who wrote it? Half-brother of Jesus. That's pretty good cred. Half-brother of Jesus grew up with him? Wow. Jesus used to drive him crazy. Doesn't he ever get in trouble? How come, how come mom and dad never spank him? Because he never did anything wrong. But do you know what James calls him? My Lord, my Lord. Half-brother. Then they ask this question. Third, Is it authentic? In other words, is it consistent with other revelation of truth? Now, let me tell you how your Bible works. Any one truth you find in your Bible, you will find it elsewhere in the Bible. If you come up against a difficult passage, one thing you do is you chase down the same topic elsewhere in the Bible. Go to the cross-references and chase it down and see, because because if it's unclear... The rest of the Bible will clarify it because the best affirmer and interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. So they would look to see, is what they're teaching in this letter, is this in harmony with the rest of Scripture? Is it authentic? 
Is it validated? Is it affirmed, confirmed by the rest of Scripture? And then you say, well, 1 Peter sure is. Because the whole Bible, though it was written for over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, and I think three different countries, the whole thing is a beautiful harmony that never contradicts. So is it authentic? Then they would ask, is it dynamic? That means, does it demonstrate this letter, 1 Peter, just using that as an example, does, that, does it demonstrate God's life-changing power according to Hebrews 4.12, which says, for the word of God is living and what? Powerful. It is charged with supernatural power. Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life-giving. They are not normal. They're not typical. Okay? So, he says, they're sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and they discern the thoughts and intents and hidden motivations of every heart. That's why I quote so many scriptures when I preach, because I have no power, but that Bible has power. And so when I quote it, I know it's going to search hearts. It's going to shine on people's lives. It's going to illuminate. It's going to convict. It's going to draw. It's going to have an influence. Amen. So I'll have a lot of verses in my message, any message I bring, because that's what's going to do the job. Okay? So they ask, reading 1 Peter here, is it dynamic? Does it convict? Um, does it have the effect that we read about in 2 Timothy 3.16? Does it have that effect of doctrine, reproof, correction, instructing in righteousness? Does it do that? So they said 1 Peter does, just as an example. And then, this is important, is it received and used by believers? Is it received? Now, you've got to be careful here, but that early church was filled with the Holy Spirit. And keep in mind that these letters that we have as our Bible that we're so familiar with, um, they were written over time piecemeal, and they would be sent out. They didn't have uh, email. They didn't have an Israeli post office in the first century. They would write a letter and, and, and send it out, and copies would be made, and they would send those out. But it was very, very different from now. They came out incrementally over time. Okay? So, the ones that began to compile and decide on and really just basically witness to and affirm which of the letters were uh, inspired, they, they just looked. How did the early church receive this one? Did they discern that it was, that it was of God? Did they have a problem with it? Have you ever picked something up as a spirit-filled believer? Picked something up to read. And it, and, it, and it claimed to be Christian from a Christian source. But as you began to read, something in you went, eh. and you couldn't even put your hand on it or your finger on it. What is it about this, this article or this book or this whatever that's bugging me? Something about it isn't right. Well, 
That's the discernment of the Holy Spirit. And they had the same thing. And so here they would receive, say, 1 Peter, and they go, wow. Now, it says that Peter the Apostle wrote this. Let's read it and see if it harmonizes with the rest of Scripture. Let's see if it's authoritative. Let's see if it's life-changing. And let's see if it witnesses to me. So they would see which ones scored with the early church. Now, give you an example, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, watch, because when you, what, the word of God? Receive the word of God, which you heard from where? From us. You, you did what with it? So they didn't go, eh, something's wrong here. No, they welcomed it. Read this next part with me. Not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Which also, look what it does, effectively works in you. It's life-changing. It's authoritative. It agrees with the rest of Scripture. But, but notice Here's just the greatest example I could find of how that early church would be presented with something in writing claiming to be of God and they either rejected it or they welcomed it as the word of God. But where did it come from? Apostles. So notice, they recognized the writings of the apostles as the very inerrant word of God. Okay? I love this stuff. I could teach this all year long. I just love this stuff. Because so many of the, of the church today, uh, in the Western world and otherwise, they don't know these things. And I'm reading more and more. I was listening to David Jeremiah the other night. And here's what David Jeremiah said. He said, I've gotten to where I don't even want to open the news. regarding anything happening in the church. Because so many times lately, I've read church news to discover that yet another well-known spiritual leader had walked away. He said, I don't even want to read it anymore. And then he went into a certain pastor. I'm not going to name him, doesn't matter but a certain pastor had sort of finally done it for him where he spoke on it. And he said, he walked away. Now I'm going to tell you folks something. The Bible predicts in the last days a great apostasy. An apostasy is not backsliding. The two are different. A backslider gets caught up in some sin they get out of the word, they start walking in the flesh, and they start messing up. The backslider of the prodigal son. And you who are spiritual, if anyone is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual are supposed to go to him and restore him because he's restorable. But an apostate is not. So it's impossible to bring him back in Hebrews. Four, 
It's impossible to bring them back, or Hebrews 6. It's impossible to bring them back. Now, what's the difference? The apostate says, I reject Christ, I renounce Christ, I denounce Christ. I want nothing to do with anything to do with Christ or the Bible or anything. I don't believe any of it. And that's what we're seeing happening out there. They have a fancy word for it now, and they're calling it deconstruction. And that means you, as a purported believer, are reassessing everything you've learned. It's, a, it's like this giant reassessment program. And you're reassessing everything you were raised to believe, everything that you thought was true about the Christian faith, and now you're reassessing it. And as you reassess it, you decide it's no longer true. And you deconstruct your faith. Until finally, uh, you've walked. Okay? So they call it deconstruction. I call it apostatizing. So I'm going this direction just for a moment because I want you to know that if you look into their life, and you look into what most Protestant churches don't teach, what they don't teach is these kinds of things that we're going over tonight. They don't teach, because that's how the devil attacks these people. Has God said? Are you sure God said? He hadn't changed his toolkit from all the way back in Eden. He said to Eve, has God said? And he says the same thing today. And these people, they can't, they don't have a leg to stand on. They, they, when they start deconstructing, they don't have this information on how the Bible came about, understanding of inspiration, understanding of, of all the things we're covering now. They don't, they, they've never been taught it. So the devil pulls the legs out from under their faith, and they go, well, you know, I just don't have evidence for what I believed, so I'm walking. I contend you have all kinds of evidence. And so that's why I'm going through this. And I know it's wordy. I know it's a little bit heady. But folks, we got to understand how the Bible was compiled. I mean, because the devil's going to hit that. Let me look at the history of canonization. First, we have the Old Testament canon. How was it put together? The Old Testament. Because that's attacked all the time. We see that Jesus abundantly refers to Old Testament books as Scripture. Amen? See, if Jesus said the Old Testament is the Word of God, good enough for me. You know, good enough for me. But, for instance, listen to what he said in Luke 24, 44. There's the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they are totally disillusioned. They are blown away by the crucifixion and death of Christ. They do not understand that he's risen from the dead. They are stumbling in their faith. Today, they would be deconstructing. Jesus eases up to them, and they start talking to Jesus about Jesus. There's some humor in the story. And they, and they said, oh, we're so bothered. We were hoping that he was going to deliver Israel and all these things. And Jesus said, explain this to me. They said, are you the only one in all of Israel that doesn't understand the things that just went down? And he's the one about whom it all went down. Look what he said to them. He said to them, 
This is what I told you while I was still with you. What did he tell them? Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Read it with me. Where? In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. What's he saying? The law of Moses, first five books, all the Psalms, and all the prophets are the word of God. All right? Did you know that Jesus in his ministry quoted from 24 of the 39 Old Testament books? He quoted from 24 of them. And in the New Testament as a whole, 34 of the 39 Old Testament books are quoted. 34 of the 39. So you got 24 by Christ himself quotes an Old Testament book. And then here comes the apostles, and they quoted 34. So 34 books of the Old Testament are validated in the New Testament by the king of validators, Jesus, and his apostles. There's only five that weren't. Now, I know what you're going to think. Well, how come they weren't? I'll give you who they were. Ezra is not quoted. Nehemiah is not quoted. Esther is not quoted. Ecclesiastes is not quoted. And the Song of Solomon is not quoted. Well, does that mean they're not the Word of God? No. It just means when you've got 34 of the 39 quoted, you're good. So then we have a couple of examples. I'll go over quickly. There was what was called the Council of Jamnia. And a gathering of Jew Jewish rabbis and scholars met in A.D. 90, 90 years after Christ, and officially recognized the 39 Old Testament books. But by Jesus' time, the 39 books were already uh, recognized and validated. So they were just kind of amening what had already been done. Then Josephus, if you know anything about Josephus, the famous Jewish historian who was not a Christian, but Josephus indicates in his writings that the 39 books of the Old Testament were recognized as authoritative. And he wrote around 95 A.D., just a few years after the Apostle John went home to be with the Lord. But the main affirmer of the Old Testament Scriptures was Christ and the Apostles themselves. Amen? Then we come to the New Testament canon, or completed New Testament. Uh, how do we know they're inspired? All of them, all 27, how do we know? Well, the apostles themselves claimed authority for their writings. They literally said, what I'm writing is the word of God. Peter wrote, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. How many of you are glad for that? How many of you would have given up on you, but you're thankful Jesus didn't? Right? All right, now, he said, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He, verse 16, 2 Peter 3, 16, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. Now listen to what Peter says. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, watch what he says, which ignorant 
and unstable people twist, distort, as they do the other what? Now, do you note with me that Peter is calling Paul's writings Scripture? Not just good stuff. Oh, he's writing good stuff. No. Scripture. To their own destruction. So when you hear the Bible wrongly taught, and it's being wrongly taught everywhere, mainly because of social media has greatly helped it. But anyway, what you're hearing is either somebody ignorant, they don't know what they're talking about, or they're unstable, they're off balance, they're, they're insides or askew, they're, they're, they're not sound. So ignorant and unstable people twist it. That tells me there's a lot of ignorant and unstable people in our culture right now. Because there's a lot of ignorant, unstable things being taught that are not the Bible. Then second, how do you know? We have inspired New Testament books. The apostles' writings were equated with Old Testament scriptures, as I just read to you. Let's look at another example. Second Peter 3, 2, Peter says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the Holy Old Testament prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he said, if you want to take the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and compare what they wrote to what the apostles have written, they're equal in their authority. Then there was a couple of councils, Council of Athanasius and Council of Carthage, uh, one of them in AD 367, another AD 397. They recognize the 27 books in our New Testament today as inspired. But that's four centuries after Christ. So bottom line is the primary affirmer of the 27 New Testament books is Christ and the apostles. And did you know that Jesus predicted the coming of the New Testament writings before one word was written? Jesus said, John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, read it with me, everybody, he will teach you all things. Stop there. The Holy Spirit will teach the apostles. Okay? Now, then what will he do? And bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So how do you know that you've got in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the red letters, how do you know it's really what Jesus said? Because Jesus right here predicted that the Holy Spirit, when he came upon the apostles, would bring to their remembrance everything he said. They had supernatural memory. Well, could I use some of that these days? Lord, help me. <laughs> Can I have a bigger amen than that? How many of you, well, leave it alone. So how do we know we have inspired New Testament books? Jesus said they would be written by the apostles. The apostles claimed authority for their writings. They all agree, and they agree with the rest of the Bible, and they're equated with Old Testament Scripture. Now let's talk about the disputed but non-canonical. When I say non-canonical, non-inspired books like the Apocrypha. 
spend a little time on it just because. How many of you came out of the Catholic Church? Ooh, stand up. Let me see. I got to see this. How many of you? Come on. Came out of the Catholic Look at that. Wow. Okay. So I want to just share a few words on the Apocrypha. Because on the radio, I've gotten calls many times answering questions from around the country. What about the Apocrypha? What about the book of Enoch? Is it of God? Well, there's 15 Apocryphal books. Apocryphal from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revealed. Something that has been hidden is now revealed. Okay? The apocryphal books, there's 15. Now here's when they were written. This matters. They were written in what we call the intertestamental period. So say with me intertestamental. What is that? That is between Malachi and Matthew. Now, you know how long went by? 400 years. Four centuries. Between Malachi, where the Old Testament was closed out, and Matthew, where the New Testament began. 400 years. The Apocrypha was written during those 400 years. Okay? So, put another way, before Christ showed up, the Apocrypha was written. 15 books. All right. They include the first and second book of Ezra. See if you recognize any of these. Book of Tobit. Book of Judith. Additions to the book of Esther. The book of Wisdom. The book of Sirach. The book of Baruch. The epistle of Jeremiah. Additions to the book of Daniel. The prayer of Manassas, the additional psalm, singular, the first and second books of, first and second and third and fourth books of Maccabees, that's the Apocrypha. All those were there when Jesus showed up, floating around in the culture. Now, if you want to take the Maccabees, they give us some accurate history. They do. They give us some accurate history. They they record, uh, for instance, when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes committed the abomination of desolation and how he was eventually overthrown. He sacrificed a pig on the altar, made it desolate. They cover that. So some historical factoids, fine. They're, They're great. But here's the problem. When you read the Apocrypha, it includes... Some Catholic doctrines like purgatory and prayer for the dead. 2 Maccabees 12, 39 to 46 covers those. And salvation by works. That's Tobit 12, verse 9. All of these are unbiblical teachings. So right now we have a problem because what's, what's the deal? They're not in unity with the rest of the Bible. So they fail one of the tests right there. Okay? There's no purgatory where you go down there and wait around to pay off your sins and then you're sprung unless one of your loved ones gives money to the church and then you're sprung quicker. 
Everybody say there's nothing new. <laughs> oh, I hate it. I, can I just vent a minute? I hate it when we reduce God to somebody you got to pay off. You get a miracle when you pay off. You send it in, you know, oh, oh, it makes me crazy. The older I get, the crazier it makes me. Because what you're saying is you earn your right standing with God by what you give. Some of the greatest spiritual blessings I've ever received happened to me early on when I didn't have a dime to my name. And I got blessed. So they would do these condolences, or not condolences. What is it? Help me, condolence. I'm giving my condolences. I did a funeral today. That's what's on my mind. Um, indulgences. So, so they, had, they had a prime indulgence taker. And he would go to these little hamlets in Germany, these little out-of-the-way cottages where loaded with poor, ignorant people. And he would say, as soon as your coins drop into the bottom of this tin cup, your loved ones are delivered from purgatory. And these poor, ignorant peasants would drop their coins in and truly walking away believing, well, Joe's out now. Or, you know, Deborah's been sprung. Now she's in heaven. She's out of purgatory where she was suffering when there was no such thing. And that's sad. And that's how the Catholic Church, the early medieval Catholic Church, built those incredible cathedrals. Indulgences. Has it changed now? Don't, aren't we told, send in your check, and as soon as I get your check, your runaway child's coming home? Or your marriage is going to be healed? Do you know how many people eventually leave the faith when they find out that's not true? Do you hear me? That's why it bothers me. I had a friend. I'm almost done, so we're okay. But I had a friend. And his mother, he had been witnessing to his mother for years. His father left his mother for a younger woman. She was shattered. He took her to a meeting where they were taking up money. And they're told, give the money. And this particular minister called her out. He said, give the, the money and your husband's coming home. So she did. Nothing. She walked away from Christ about a year later, never returned. I think they're going to answer for that. Oh, I'm real careful what I say. God said. Do you hear me why it bothers me? Because so many false promises are made. Send in your money. That's indulgences in the 21st century. Do I believe you get blessed by giving? You better believe it. I've tithed my whole adult life. Good times and bad. But you know what? If I didn't tithe for three months, I'm not under a curse. I'm going to lose some blessing. 
I'm not under a curse because the blood makes me right with God, not my giving. I didn't mean to go off on that. I'm going to shut up. I can just see the mail now from radio. All right. Let's, real quickly, reasons for rejecting the Apocrypha. The Jews never accepted it. The Jews never accepted it. The Apocrypha never claims to be inspired. The Apocrypha is never quoted as authoritative in Scripture, ever. And um, Matthew, Jesus implies the close of the Old Testament historical Scripture was the death of Zechariah in 400 B.C. This excludes any books written after Malachi and before the New Testament. And the Apocrypha was written in the intertestamental period. And so was one more I'm going to talk about, and then I'm done. The Book of Enoch. Why do I bring up the Book of Enoch? Because you can't believe the number of calls I've gotten on radio from around the country asking about the Book of Enoch. Because the Book of Enoch is red-hot stuff on social media. So they want to know, what about the Book of Enoch? Well, it was also written in the intertestamental period, about 200 years before Jesus came. And it claims to be from Enoch. There's only a problem with that. Enoch lived centuries before. Matter of fact, you'll remember, all the way back to Genesis 5, Enoch was the father of Methuselah, who lived longer than anyone on earth. 969 years. 969 years. He got married when he was 300. He graduated school when he was 400. I mean, 969 years. Ten centuries. The woman whose funeral I did today was 99 and she had told her son a few days ago before she passed, she had said, who wants to live to be a hundred? She went home. But 969? So Enoch was his father. But you remember Enoch is famous for being the first man raptured. Because he walked with God. Let me read it. Uh, do, 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 do. I had it somewhere here. Um, yeah, walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. That's what's going to happen to the church. Can we stand up together tonight? Now, does anybody have a question? Okay, let's sit down, sit down, sit down. We'll pray in just a second. Um, let me take a couple of questions real quick. Because I know this is a lot of uh, deep stuff. So go ahead. This is a newlywed right here, by the way. We married them in front of the whole first service. It was cool. Okay. Okay. You mentioned apostasy. Yeah. And is that considered as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? No. Apostasy is when... Uh, you have now there's a de there's a debate can somebody truly born again apostatize or and this is involved and I really need to deal with it another night as far as going into the book of Hebrews who was Hebrews written to Hebrews which means Jewish people and there is the famous apostasy verses 
it is impossible to renew again to repentance one who has tasted the powers to come and been enlightened and illuminated and so on and so forth. And it describes all these things that sound for all the world like somebody saved. But there is a debate about whether or not he's describing somebody truly saved or somebody that just got real close because the writer of Hebrews, really it's written to convince and persuade Jewish people not to return to Moses. Okay? So, I, I kind of, I go back and forth with that because I can go into a lot of verses that, that convince me that once you're saved, you're saved. Now, apostasy in the true sense of the word means to walk away, to denounce, to renounce, to no longer own or claim or embrace Jesus Christ at all. I'm done. I've seen about two people in my life genuinely apostatize. So, um, I don't know if I answered your question or not, because to me, um, if you're truly born again, Truly say, will you go there? I would think not. I think God knows your heart, and well, that might be part of your destiny. If you're raised in a Pentecostal tradition, you believe you can walk away and lose it. If you're raised in, a, like, say, the Baptist world, you believe you can never lose it. And I really need an evening to deal with this effectively. Um, so I know that may not be a total answer, but my own persuasion is if you are truly born again, I don't see how you denounce Christ and walk away because you have a new nature that loves Christ. And first John is full of statements like whoever is born of God does no longer practice sin. In other words, you're in and you've got a new nature. And I believe in the power of the born-again experience more than our ability to walk away. Well, God is the judge. He is. The final judge. One other little quick thing. Okay. Okay. This is kind of off subject here, but okay. When Lazarus was dead for four days, Mm -hmm. what happened to his soul? Well, I believe uh, Lazarus, let's remember, Jesus had not died on the cross and risen from the dead, yet he loved Jesus and Jesus loved him and his sisters. So he had a faith in Christ. So my belief is that when Lazarus died, and Jesus knew he was going to die, so the whole thing was overseen by Jesus because he already knew how it was all going to come out. I believe that he went to the good part of Hades. And this is another teaching that's involved. But Hades was like a waiting room. There's a good part of Hades called Abraham's bosom, and a bad part where the rich man went that Jesus told us about that wanted somebody to dip his tongue in some water because he was so thirsty and he begged to be able to go back to earth and warn his brothers about this terrible place. And he looked across and he saw his former servant resting in Abraham's bosom, but Jesus said there's a great chasm between me and the bad part of Hades 
and him in the good part of Hades. I believe Lazarus went to the good part, and when Jesus rose from the dead, he emptied out the good part, and he took them to heaven. Okay? So I believe that's where Lazarus went. And he had a short stay. It was a four-night stay in a, the uh, Hades Hotel. All right, anyone else? One more. I'll take one more. Jesse, uh-oh. Here we go. You talked about uh, deconstructionism earlier. Yes. What's the difference? I've run into some people, and I've noticed there are some churches springing up yeah. that are calling themselves Reformed. Mostly the Reformed Baptist Church that they claim to embrace the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Some of the things that I've heard them say have been kind of uh, contradictory to some of the things that we read in Scripture. I know some of the things that I read in Scripture. Yeah. I'm not familiar with what you just quoted. When you say reform, generally that means they've gone Calvinistic. Okay? That's another night. I need to talk about Calvinism. <laughs> Calvinism and Arminianism. And I'm neither one. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, okay? But I'm certainly not Calvinistic in my doctrine. But um, so when you say reform, I think that now the, the deconstructed people have started churches and they're called progressive. That's the buzzword. And progressive churches and progressive Christians, really, they don't hold the biblical truth much at all. And Maybe I'll take a series on the cults or a series on these various movements because they're happening all around us, all around us. And I guarantee you, somebody you know, somebody you love may end up being somebody really close to you is, I, I had a good pastor friend tell me last week that his son has begun deconstructing. And I've known him for a long, long time. The, the boy and he's begun deconstructing so and the parents are very burdened about it because it means I'm reassessing everything and deciding it's not true so maybe I'll just spend a series on that deconstructionism Arminianism Calvinism other isms but we need to understand what's happening and how the devil is attacking people so let's stand together tonight Amen. Can we thank the Lord for his presence here? And Amen. Amen. How many of you are glad you've got the word of God in your hand? Amen. The word of God in your hand. Yes. Let God be true and every man a liar. Amen. So can we lift our hands to the Lord Jesus? Father, thank you that we know that we have eternal life. And that what you have given to us as a guide and instruction manual for living is the very word of God. And if we pay attention to it, it lights up the dark corners of our life. And it guides us safely to heaven's harbor. And we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in giving us this word. 